Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome back to Pod Save the People. I'm excited that Britt, Clint, and Sam are back for the news in 2018. We also are joined today by Congressman Crowley, who represents New York City and who is the chair of the Democratic Caucus. It has, you know, real-life consequences, you know, when the president tweets out that he um, thinks that people should uh, have work requirements before they be eligible for Medicaid, you know, I, I question myself, does the president work enough to be eligible for the benefits that he receives at this point? Last week, I talked about having a plan. And having a plan is about setting goals, about mapping out how you can reach those goals, and ultimately about putting yourself in a position so that you're more likely to be where you need to be when the magic happens, when luck hits, when opportunities arise because you've already thought about where you're headed. But today I want to talk about intention. And intention is about saying, why am I doing what I'm doing? What I found over the past few years is that a lot of people who think that they're doing really altruistic and morally courageous work, but they've never asked themselves, like, why did I go in the street? Why did I stand for that issue? Why was I silent when I thought that I would have spoken up about that thing. Why do I care about these issues? And the reason that you examine your intentions is to make sure that you're operating from a place of purpose. And when you operate from a place of purpose, you have the strength and courage to do the hard work. When you don't know why you do what you do, what you do is you find yourself standing on shaky ground. You can be moved quickly. You're not really committed. You can be swayed. It's like being in quicksand. But when you know why you're doing what you're doing, it's like being on a solid rock. Let's do this. In his news with me, Clint Smith III, our resident academic, Samuel Sinyangwe, our resident data scientist, and Brittany Pecknett, former member of the Ferguson Commission, President Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing, and current leader in education reform. Hey, everyone. It's the news. This is Brittany Pecknett at Miss Pat Getty on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. This is DeRay at DeRay, D-R-A-Y on Twitter. Well, I'm coming to you live after having listened to the Finesse remix, not one, not two, but like 10 times in a row in the last hour. 2011 times. Yeah, like it's so great. 2018 times. Like, why not? Like 2018 times for 2018, Bruno Mars, the most perfect Cardi B on a living color set, like New Jack Swing all day. It just makes me so happy. Well, Cardi's verse was what? Like 16 bars? She had her 16 bars. Yeah. And, and then she, then she got some good ad-libs in the end. She like, did. Ew. That one. <laughs> <laughs> Is there some significance to 16 bars? I feel like I should know that. Is that like a... That's basically like what a rap, how long a rap feature usually is. Typically. 16 bars. Okay. If it's not 16, don't get mad at me. I don't know. I got to check Genius. But as soon as it came on... I, like, knew this was a banger. I was just like, oh. It's perfect. I could just tell. It was New Jack Swing. And if you don't know what New Jack Swing is, you should definitely go and look it up. There's a great series on Twitter um, from a user who uses the hashtag Music Sermon. She did, like, a whole thread on the origins of New Jack Music Swing. Music Sermon. Music Sermon. I promise you, it's, like, my favorite thing that I read each week. Never Music Sermon. It's one person it's so does good. it? One person. Her name is Naima on Twitter. But, oh, um, at Naima. Yes. But uh, she uses the hashtag Music Sermon, and she groups all all of the she threads these like great musicology kind of lessons and she puts them in a moment but the new jack swing one is really good there are oh, videos yeah. and artists and the whole nine 
It's great. And you should also watch New Jack City where you can hear the music and understand the culture that surrounded the musical movement that influenced Bruno Mars to create finesse. It's been playing on repeat in our house. And we also cannot talk about all of these folks of color without being very clear and reminding ourselves as we continue in this week that people of color from all over the world have come here to America for uh, many different reasons um, and continue to be a part of what actually makes America great. Um, So no matter what an orange man in a White House has to say, these countries are not crap holes for those of you listening with your children. Um, And I am, I am of course deeply disappointed in the fact that this kind of rhetoric continues to come out of this administration. I'm of course not surprised as I'm sure none of you are. I'm also not quick to jump to um, trying to convince him of all people or the folks in his administration that Haitians and Africans and people from all over the world who are not white are somehow worthy, right? That like we need to list off some kind of um, great achievement coming from each of these countries in order for him to be convinced that we're worthy. The system of white supremacy has never buckled at the idea um, that people of color are intelligent and successful and smart and beautiful and enough. Um, we are enough simply because of our humanity. And so I'm. I think it's really important to defend people and to, help people um, be reminded of one another's humanity. But I'm I'm not in this to convince Donald Trump or anybody else who won't agree, no matter what we say, that we're good enough and smart enough when I already know we are. Yeah, and I think to the point, Brittany, it's part of the way that I'm thinking about this is twofold, right? So in part, I think you are exactly right in that we should not have to share stories of of exceptional immigrants or like exceptional immigrant narratives in order to legitimate this place of immigrants here. Like you, we shouldn't have to hear stories of, you know, Haitian folks rescuing puppies from burning buildings and starting multimillion dollar businesses in order to, to convince ourselves that Haitians deserve to be here. Uh, And then secondly, uh, part of the reason we can't be thinking about the phenomena of immigration to the United States with all from places like Haiti, uh, El Salvador, Nicaragua, um, West Africa, East Africa, without accounting for the role of U.S. foreign policy mm-hmm. that has shaped the contemporary political and economic landscape of those countries. And we've talked about this a little bit before in the context of DACA, but but like real folks, we you can't have an honest conversation about why Haiti looks <laughs> the way that it does without accounting for the like centuries of political exploitation and isolation that took place after the Haitian revolution in 1804 because and folks were mad. Right. That folks yeah. were mad. Like in the entire Western hemisphere cut Haiti off because they were upset that a black Republic existed. Right. And you the same with El Salvador. You can't have a real conversation about El Salvador without also taking into account the role that the U S government directly played in funding a civil war that fundamentally destabilized that country and created a refugee scenario, right? So we have to always be considering the the full scope and the totality of these issues. And, and just at the end of the day, like really come back to our empathy, right? Like what would we do for our own kids, for our own families, if we found ourselves in situations that were um, often saturated with a, a violence and a poverty um, and, a, and a set of difficult political circumstances that a diff- another country w- played a huge role in creating in the first place. So... 
Uh, we always have to take the sort of long historical arc um, into perspective when thinking about these things. It's so easy for people to choose not to engage with this idea that we are part, that our security and stability is one of the reasons why other countries are destabilized. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think you make that point actually, and you made it before with DACA. And I'd love to figure out like how we can have that be one of the talking points at the national level too, because it's so real that like, Part of our comfort it rests on the back, you know, as much as we talk about the ills of colonialism and how it's destroyed countries, including this one, uh, for so many people, it's like we've actually replicated that same model and we benefit from it. Like we, right. as like a stable society in some ways, benefit from the destabilization of other societies. So thank you, Clint. I'm always learning too. So this podcast comes out on Tuesday. Uh, and so that's a day after Martin Luther King Jr. national holiday. And as many folks are coming to understand, I think that we are becoming increasingly clear in our sort of popular national discourse around the fact that Martin Luther King is not simply the uh, rhetorical teddy bear that we have sort of rendered him into a caricature of. Uh, and, you know, I think the the most often quoted part of Dr. King and his legacy is the I have a dream speech and a very specific part of the I have a dream speech that is often decontextualized in a way that is meant to um, propagate this narrative of colorblindness and and sort of integration without any sort of reconciliation or without any sort of uh, reparations. And, and that is simply uh, not the case, right? That is not accounting for one that is taking Dr. King's words out of context. Also, it is not accounting for the sort of larger political project that Dr. King engaged in. So, you know, first, it's important to consider the fact that, you know, Dr. King, while he is sort of universally celebrated now, we may have talked about this before, but he's universally celebrated now. But if you go back and look at the Gallup polls in 1966, nearly two thirds of Americans didn't approve of him or what he was doing. They thought he was too radical. They thought he was acting for too much. They didn't like his tactics. They didn't like the way that he was thinking about and approaching civil rights. They didn't like the sort of increasingly uh, radical vision that he was espousing about what a more equitable world should look like. But people don't want to reckon with that part of who Dr. King is in the way that we think about who he is now. And so we sort of erase that part and we make him into a caricature again of who he actually was. And And the danger of that is that when you make a caricature of someone like Dr. King, you make a caricature of an entire movement, right? And so that's when people fail to consider the fact that the civil rights movement was not just this, you know, Brian Stevenson always talks about it as if it were this three-day festival, right? He says on day one, Rosa sat down on a bus. Day two, Martin had a dream. Day three, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks were passing out cotton candy. Everybody could vote. We sang Kumbaya and it was cool. And and it's, it's funny, story. but like that is the way that many people think about what the civil rights movement was. And that is such a, does such a disservice to like the decades long struggle that the civil rights movement actually was and, and doesn't wrestle with the, the very difficult nature and uh, full context of, of how social change actually happens. And when, when you do that, when you make a caricature of an entire movement, then when Colin Kaepernick takes a knee or black lives matter walks across a bridge, people are like, Black Lives Matter would, you know, or Dr. King would never walk across a bridge. He would never let people do that. That's ridiculous. This is, he would never allow such a thing to happen. And you're like, Selma came out like just two years ago. Like, what are you talking about? You need to watch that movie. And I just want to point out, uh, Brandon Terry, uh, who's a professor at Harvard, has a great essay 
uh, that came out in the Boston Review that's sort of rethinking Dr. King and his legacy. And part of what he's focusing on is a speech he gave in 1968 called Beyond Vietnam. And if you haven't read it, you should absolutely read it. We're going to put it in the show notes and on the website. Uh, But I just want to read an excerpt of it. Perhaps a more tragic recognition of reality took place when it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia or East Harlem. And he goes on, I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. For the sake of those boys, for the sake of this government, for the sake of the hundreds of thousands trembling under our violence, I cannot be silent. And so the last thing I'll say about this is that I think that we can take what Dr. King is thinking about in Beyond Vietnam and and think about how applicable it is today and the fact that King, especially at the end of his life, was coming to understand the fact that we could not understand and make sense of the social and racial inequality domestically here in the United States without accounting for the role that U.S. foreign policy plays in creating um, a sort of like global destabilization of inequality across the globe, right? And, And whether it be in Southeast Asia or different parts of the global South, Um, And I think that that's something that we can think about right now, right? As we kind of mentioned at the beginning of the show, we can't really have a conversation about what the contemporary landscape of inequality and and race and racism looks like in this country without thinking about the way that the forces of our immigration system are shaped by U.S. foreign policy today. Clint, I'm so thankful you brought this up. I just did a video with Mike Uh, that we released this weekend talking about exactly this, about how much we sanitize Dr. King and how really we let ourselves off the hook when we do so. Because if we forced ourselves to reckon not only with his legacy, but with the philosophies and the work and the movement that was happening all around him, uh, we would have to reckon with ourselves very differently. We'd have to ask ourselves if we were the white moderates he was talking to in the letter from a Birmingham jail, if we would have been following along in opposition because our families and friends um, told us that being racist was the popular thing and we just didn't want to make anybody uncomfortable at the dinner table. We would have had to ask ourselves if we were willing to sacrifice everything as he and so many of his his contemporaries were. Uh, I also think that what you brought up about Beyond Vietnam in particular and his work around that is important when we reckon with the philosophy of nonviolence. Dr. King was a pacifist for very specific reasons. And I think so many people align being nonviolent with being a coward, and they're just not synonymous whatsoever. The purpose of nonviolence, especially as it was used in the mid-century civil rights movement, was not about somehow showing the system of white supremacy or individual white supremacists that black people or oppressed people or poor people were good enough or that we had nice enough clothes to wear and therefore you should like us, you should want to be our neighbors, or that we eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches just like you, so why not sit down next to us at the Woolworths counter? The point was not to justify our humanity 
uh, by being nonviolent. Nonviolence as a principle is powerful in that it exposes just how evil oppression is. So if you imagine the image of Bull Connor standing up against a peaceful John Lewis, that helped expose something to people who thought that Black folks and oppressed people were just complaining for no reason. When you think about water hoses and attack dogs being used against peaceful children, that sends a particular message and that principle of nonviolence is central there. Similarly, as Dr. King has already said, when you think about the entire U.S. government and the way it assaulted the people of Vietnam, uh, we cannot uh, extend the principle of nonviolence and the, uh, the principle of peaceful direct action only domestically. And so I think that's a really important point. Uh, and, you know, like I said, nonviolence is not cowardice. It's also not fear of confrontation, right? We're talking about nonviolent direct action. As you already said, people already thought Dr. King was way too radical. Quite frankly, they spoke about Dr. King and his contemporaries in a lot of the same ways they speak about us right now. That we're race baiters, that we talk about race too much, that we were engaged in peaceful direct action, but it made people uncomfortable or it was inconvenient and therefore we should go home and just negotiate. Negotiate. While you're reading Beyond Vietnam, you should also pick up a letter from a Birmingham jail and understand why that approach, that philosophy um, was antithetical to what Dr. King stood for, what we all stand for. And so I'm hopeful that both as you engaged in your MLK holiday this weekend and as you move forward in your activism and thoughtfulness throughout the year, that you will take these things to heart. So two things about this piece that were interesting to me. The first was one of the justifications for nonviolent direct action um, was this issue of participation and mass participation uh, being so essential to being able to actually uh, confront, disrupt, and dismantle uh, these oppressive systems and structures. And so the theory being that nonviolent direct action was something that everybody could participate in. It wasn't limited to uh, folks who were you know, lawyers or, you know, highly, you know, particularly skilled as policy advocates or, or what have you. It wasn't limited to uh, a particular group of people, a particular race or gender. It was something that people it, at writ large could participate in, could come out into the streets, could uh, put their bodies on the line uh, in unison. Uh, folks who had, um, you know, various different age groups, like all of that, and w- being part of um, thinking in advance, what does it mean to have a mass movement? What does it mean to sustain that movement? What does it mean to have opportunities and pathways for as many people as possible to be involved in creating change? And I think that that ethos uh, is just as important today as it was uh, in the civil rights movement. And I think the second piece was this focus on, uh, in addition to dismantling Jim Crow laws uh, and barriers to political participation, uh, King's focus on economic inequality and poverty as well, uh, and how so much work has yet to be done uh, to achieve some of the basic programs that King was advocating for, whether it's universal basic income, uh, which is something that we're having conversations about right now in many uh, cities and states. I know Stockton under Mayor Tubbs uh, became the first city uh, to actually begin implementing a universal basic income program, uh, as well as programs like the Federal Jobs Guarantee, which uh, there have been a number of articles and think pieces that have come out on that, uh, really recognizing that without resources, uh, having political rights uh, does not necessarily translate into uh, having the ability to exercise those rights to fully participate in and enjoy 
um, you know, citizenship. And so we have to have the economic piece as well as uh, the sort of removal of explicit racist barriers to participation. Um, so, so those are the two things that really struck me. And, and you know, I think it is a, a testament that MLK's writings continue uh, to be such so powerful, so influential, and so prescient when we think about the struggles and the challenges that we're going through today, uh, many of which are, you know, really exactly the same, just uh, a new iteration uh, with, you know, the descendants of the same people that were at the table last time. All of this makes me think, too, of the question of can we build a critical mass? Like, can we, when we think about the importance of mass action, when we think about uh, nonviolence is a strategy that forces the system to respond. And as the article talks about, King thinks of nonviolence as uh, nonviolent direct action as something that is always supplemented by procedural justice, that is always supplemented by other forms of action. So the courts need to work, people need to vote, the elections matter. All of those work in concert. It's not as if sit-ins are the only part of the strategy, just as they weren't the only part of the strategy back then. I'm interested, though, in... And like how technology will either help us or hurt us in the in the work of building sort of a mass movement or building uh, mass action that I think in some ways we have overcome the awareness battle in a really quick and easy fashion relative to the past. I think about a conversation with King's uh, first barber in Montgomery when he first moved to town and he talked about. He was like, I remember when King became like the person that you all think of today. He was like, we had a public meeting. There weren't a lot of, like, there was no way for you to sort of meet somebody like that unless you went and heard them talk in public. And he was like, I I heard him talk. We all heard him talk. And you could just tell he had a gift. But you think about what it meant that the only way that you could be in proximity to people's ideas was like to physically be in their presence. And like, we're just in a different time. So that it does allow ideas to spread quicker. I do think, though, that something might be lost in sort of the vibrancy or the call to action when the physical proximity just isn't there in that way. Can we build something using technology that mimics that, that mobilizes people too? I'm hopeful. I think that we're on the cusp. I think that the protests in Ferguson are like probably the best example of technology and not sort of one person creating space that allow other people to create space. But that's what I think of when I think about Uh, this moment now is that we saw both the beauty and the limits of the civil rights movement. We saw the transformative power of leadership like King and its limits. Uh, What will our lessons be in this moment is what I think of when I read this piece by Brandon. And one last thing I'll say is uh, I think many of us, you know, either in high school or college or or on our own time have read many of of Dr. King's pieces of writing and speeches, but I would really encourage folks to uh, listen to a lot of his speeches, I think it creates an entirely different sort of sensory experience. I listened to Beyond Vietnam just before we came in to record, and and I had read the speech several times, but this is the first time that I had listened to it. And to, as DeRay was alluding to, like it, I was not physically there when he was giving the speech, obviously, but I felt a sort of uh, intimacy to his words in a way that I had not before because I was listening to him. I could hear the pauses. I could hear the inflections. And, and it's, you know, people are busy and it's also sometimes easier. You know, a lot of King's speeches were very long. And I think if you just go on YouTube and, and listen to some of this stuff in the background while you're making dinner or doing laundry, it's, uh, it creates a really worthwhile experience. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. 
In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. If you were in a horror movie, this would be the part where the used car you just bought doesn't start. But you're not in a horror movie. And you found your car on Carfax.com. Carfax can help you know if the car has been in any accidents and how much it's worth based on its history. Take the scary out of car shopping. Shop Carfax at the all-new Carfax.com. So my piece of news is an initiative, a ballot initiative in Washington State, uh, which local activists, a a large coalition of local activists in Washington State called De-Escalate Washington, have submitted more than 350,000 signatures uh, to the uh, Secretary of State's office uh, there in Washington that would force the legislature there to consider a measure that would change the state's deadly force law uh, with regard to police. So in Washington state, it is the only state that has a, a requirement that prosecutors show that police acted intentionally with malice in order to be able to prosecute that officer and charge them criminally uh, for using deadly force. And so, you know, we've talked about police violence uh, many times in the past and some of the statistics about how hard it is to charge for an officer to ultimately end up being charged and how rare it is for an officer to be charged following uh, a police shooting. Uh, it's about, it was about 1% of officers were charged uh, for killing somebody last year of uh, over 1,100 people uh, who were killed. And in Washington state, it is actually the hardest of any other state because of that law. And so the initiative uh, 
would change that standard, removing that malice requirement, uh, as well as doing a number of other great things like uh, requiring de-escalation training, requiring training on uh, training police officers on how to interact with folks who have uh, mental illness, uh, as well as a number of other things, implicit bias, uh, requiring officers to uh, intervene and provide uh, first aid uh, in a situation where somebody is injured uh, or, or you know, shot. And so all of those things uh, have to be considered now because they've collected enough signatures. Uh, they will have to be considered by the state legislature. If the state legislature uh, does not end up passing this, then it goes to the ballot uh, in November uh, where the voters will end up deciding on this. And so I bring this piece of news because, you know, this is an example. You know, we talked about the ballot initiative in Florida. This is going on in Washington state. And it's an example of the people really coming together and organizing uh, in the majority of states that allow uh, ballot initiatives uh, to put measures directly on the ballot uh, or to force the legislature to consider them to change some of these fundamentally um, broken and unjust aspects of the system uh, to ensure that, one, that we're addressing issues like police violence and mass incarceration, uh, and that we are doing things that politically uh, have not been done that should have been done for quite some time. I'm fascinated by ballot initiatives and and the power that they give people all across the country to to like make change without having to just lobby legislators for it, like to be able to put things directly before voters. Not every state in the country actually has that mechanism in place. So it'll be interesting to see how it's used. We know we've seen, we've all seen California use it for a host of things. It is beautiful to see the organizers in Washington use it. And I'll be looking forward to states all across the country. It'd be fascinating to think about criminal justice reform being done through ballot initiative as opposed to having to have to wait for legislators to actually get the the moral footing and to finally get the courage to actually do what is right. But just let the people do it. Just let the people do it. That should be on bumper stickers, T-shirts, banners. Just let the people. That's <laughs> what we'll call this episode. It. Just let the people do it. Just let the it. people do it. Just let the people do it. So I want to talk about healthcare, but I want to talk about the aspect of healthcare that often gets erased, uh, and it's healthcare for young people, for children. We often don't talk about it because those folks who are under 18 cannot show up at the ballot box uh, and engage in their citizenry in the same way that those of us who are older than 18 do. So it's important that we shine a light whenever we get a chance. The Children's Health Insurance Program, also known as CHIP, technically had its funding expire at the end of September 2016. Through a series of small fixes, Congress has temporarily been able to push off the most damaging effects of this expiring. And the hope has been that Congress would actually renew funding for CHIP before the worst happened. But as we speak, we are at risk of CHIP running out of funding any single day now. And what that means for states is that they will either be forced to make the decision to cut off enrollment, which means no new children could be a part of CHIP, or to actually drop children who are already enrolled in CHIP and receive their health care that way. I think it goes without saying the kind of devastating effect this would have on families all across the country, families who leverage CHIP every single day for preventative care to make sure that their children have all their shots and immunizations before they go to school, to make sure that children have access to primary care physicians so that they can actually engage in preventative health care. Hopefully, it also goes without saying that there are families with children 
who have much more catastrophic healthcare concerns, chronic illnesses, things that have cost prohibitive treatments that they would not be able to receive without the assistance of CHIP. Here's the other really important thing. The Congressional Budget Office a few days ago came out with a wild fact about the cost of CHIP over the next 10 years. That not only would it be free to operate CHIP over the next 10 years, it would actually save the government $6 billion. So essentially, this is, it would save us money to help children. At the end of the day, if kids are not well, they cannot succeed. This is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Kids need to be feeling well, doing well, thinking um, right, uh, and feeling healthy in order to be successful in school, successful in social environments, et cetera, et cetera. All of the proof is there that CHIP has closed the gap of uninsured, has increased access to health care, both in the medical field and in the dental field, and has helped children lead stronger, healthier, happier lives. So Congress clearly needs to get it together. And we can't afford to keep having conversations about health care without thinking about the youngest among us. And your point, Brittany, I think it part of what people need to recognize is that, like, if a child, if anybody, but especially a child, is sick, every other facet of their life, it should, you know, be clear, is detrimentally affected. You can't, we can't begin to address issues of education. We can't begin to address issues of uh, food insecurity. We can't begin to address issues around, you know, potential future employment. If children are sick, like that exacerbates every other part of a young person's life. And and I think that sometimes we get lost in like uninsured, insured, what you know, and we lose sight of the bigger picture of like if a person is sick and doesn't have the the funds to uh, mitigate that, that illness, that affects not only that child, but everybody in that family and and detrimentally impacts the economic conditions of those those families who are being impacted. So while we know that CHIP covers children in every state across the country, what I don't know that everybody knows is that 18 states across the country use CHIP funding to also cover pregnant women. Uh, And so each year, approximately 370,000 pregnant women receive care through CHIP. And these are women who uh, don't qualify for Medicaid, but are still too uh, poor to afford or can't necessarily afford um, to purchase their own health insurance. And so it kind of covers the people in that gap. And with almost 400,000 pregnant women receiving prenatal care uh, through CHIP, this again, like neonatal care, go every study that has been done around the, the care that a young person gets before they are even born um, is clear that it impacts every facet of their life trajectory moving forward, right? Again, so this is not only about the safety of the of the fetus. This is not only about the safety of the mother. Um, this impacts the the trajectory of of both a mother and child for the rest of their lives if they are unable to get the treatment that they need during those uh, nine to ten months. And so that you know, I didn't necessarily know that until recently, and I just wanted to bring that up because I I thought that, that was an important point. 
it's like about 2 million kids are a chip. What's also interesting about chip is uh, chip covers about 90% of the cost. So there are a couple of states that have said that if chip runs out, they will be able to assume the cost. I think Louisiana is actually one of those states that they will pick up the full cost of chip in the interim. But very few states can do that because it's 90% of the cost. So it's a huge a huge impact uh, to kids. It's also reminded the Republicans are willing to play games with people's lives. And, and we've gotten this over and over, so this isn't new. But it is important to just know every time. It's like, what's the, there's no win in this. It, like, this doesn't help people's families. It doesn't, everybody's constituents are impacted. And still, it's like, this is something people are negotiating about. And you're like, how, Sway? How does that happen? So hopefully CHIP's uh, funding gets renewed before it actually goes away on January the 19th. And for me, this is another example that exposes the hypocrisy in the Republican Party and how the arguments that they often use to attempt to explain their actions uh, never comport with the facts or rarely comport with the facts. So in this case, you know, there are a whole bunch of Republicans who for so long have been saying we shouldn't spend more money. The government, federal government shouldn't spend money because there's a lot of debt. The debt and the deficit are really bad. And so we need to be fiscal conservatives. And, you know, here you have a bill, you know, to reauthorize this program would actually save the government money. And like there's, as, as DeRay said, there's no downside to this. Like this is supporting among the most vulnerable population in the country, like children and pregnant mothers. And yet, and still, even despite all of that, they still have not reauthorized this program. And so I think, you know, ultimately, we've seen with the tax bill how quickly they moved in and sacrificed all of the things they said they cared about in order to give the rich more money that they didn't need. And here you have the exact opposite where uh, it really didn't require any sacrifice at all from them. There was no political downside. There was no economic downside. It was just the right thing to do uh, for people who needed it most. And they can't bring themselves even to do that. Uh, and so, you know, it's a huge failure uh, by Republicans, the Republican Party in general, by you know, our elected leadership. And hopefully uh, we can replace all of those legislators uh, who have dragged their feet on this and hold them accountable in November. So my news is about the Baltimore City Police Department. There are two things. Uh, one, the first is um, recently um, seven police officers in the Baltimore City Police Department were indicted for uh, racketeering. They were members of an elite gun task force who uh, got indicted for conspiracies that accused them of robbing people, extorting drug dealers for their drugs, filing false reports, and claiming fraudulent overtime. It's like a whole unit of them. And uh, the seven officers made about $400,000 in overtime pay between July 1st, 2015 and June 20th, 2016, with one officer doubling his $85,000 salary. Now, this is one of the biggest indictments of a section of police in uh, in the city of Baltimore. That happened a couple weeks ago, a couple uh, months ago. But what just happened in January 2018 is there was a bail bondsman who pled guilty to helping some of those officers resell drugs. So uh, this uh, this bail bondsman, he would help one of the officers uh, with stolen uh, cocaine, heroin, and marijuana. 
And he would then help them sell them back onto the streets and he, they would split the profits. So there's like accounts of uh, some a woman saying that she like bought them from his house. And, and like there was a whole operation and this is slowly uncovering itself. But when we say that the system of policing is is broken at the root, this is what we're talking about. I said, what does it mean with the people who are ostensibly supposed to enforce the rules, keep everybody straight and narrow, are actually inflicting terror on people's lives? Not only are they killing people and harming people using force, which we have, which we talk about a lot because it's happening a lot. But this is stuff that we actually don't know until something big happens or we don't have documented evidence of. People in communities have known this for a long time. But literally, like a, a almost the entire section of the Baltimore City Police Department, the eighth largest police department in the country, officers are indicted for terrorizing people's communities. And I just wanted to bring that up because so often people say we're like attacking the police and da da da. And it's like, no, the police are literally, they're like s- stealing drugs from drug dealers and reselling it. That is nothing about that is right. And we should talk about what happens when an institution allows that to flourish. And I think this builds on, there's a, a whole body of evidence showing that over-policing, mass incarceration actually contribute to increasing crime and making communities less safe. And this is sort of the the other piece of that, which is not only the policing strategy and tactics making communities less safe and terrorizing communities, but the actual police officers literally engaging in criminal activity that is, you know, robbing people, home invasions, burglaries, uh, stealing from folks. I mean, this is about as direct as it gets. And so when we hear, you know, these conversations about, you know, policing and police reform, uh, really opposing further investment in the police, uh, you know, one of the only things that that we hear from a lot of elected officials uh, whenever there are issues of of crime and and people feeling unsafe is, you know, we need more police on the streets. Um and this is exactly why that those perceptions need to be interrogated because not only is that strategy not an effective strategy when you look at the research, but then you get situations like this where the police are literally part of the problem uh, and it does not make sense, therefore, to continue to invest in scaling and expanding that, that issue um, until these things are being addressed. You know, I think, Sam, that is the hard part for people to understand as to why we should not continue to invest in something that is clearly broken, because there is an assumption that more money being funneled into police departments is always the right choice, Um, that we always will need more officers on the street. When actually, when you walk around a lot of our communities, people will say they will feel less safe if that is the case. Uh, And I think it's just hard for people to connect the dots there and they want to treat these like isolated incidents instead of recognizing the corruption that exists in an entire system and Looking carefully at what that entire system is rooted in, I'm not going to continue to invest lots of funds in something that's broken. I'm going to invest time. I'm going to invest uh, talent. I'm going to invest intellect. I'm going to shift the way that things are done if we continue to to use that system at all. But I'm certainly not going to continue to invest funds uh, and capital that could be used elsewhere, especially in a city like Baltimore, where there are lots of places where those funds could be used um, in things that we know are are broken and in things that we know are continuously corrupt. Yeah, and I think this is important, and it kind of speaks to what we were talking about last week with regard to the Heather McDonald article that was published in the National Review, and it's this idea that should, in this context, you know, Heather McDonald might say that uh, by bringing this up, we are uh, creating an environment that is hostile to police. We are uh, reflecting anti-police sentiment. We are 
contributing to the what will inevitably be the uh, an exacerbation of the Ferguson effect where police can, are incapable of doing their job. But again, like this is not an isolated incident. This is reflective of like a larger culture and a larger phenomenon that is taking place in municipalities and cities across this country. And the idea that we should not speak to that and the idea that we should not challenge that and the idea that that would not then inform the way that people think about institutions of police, that they are told by many people like Heather McDonald that they are supposed to invest their blind trust into is absurd. And I think we have seen case after case in which police officers fail to uphold uh, the duty that they they swear an oath to. Um, and, and are in fact doing the opposite, right? That they are contributing direct harm to the people whose taxes are, pay their salaries. And, and we have to name it and we have to say it. And, and we will continue to say it until we reach a point where, uh, these institutions and the people in these institutions are held accountable for the things that they are doing and not, uh, seen as these institutions that are, uh, unable to receive the critique that we are rightfully and and justifiably lobbing their way. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Beyonce, Katanji Brown-Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, The Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color-founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids' books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life, maybe that's yourself, to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. And now my conversation with Congressman Crowley, the chair of the Democratic Congress in the House. Well, Congressman Crowley, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you very much. Great to be with you all. What committee are you on? I'm on the Ways and Means Committee. The Ways and Means Committee is in charge of uh, taxation. Uh, they they develop the ways and the means to pay for uh, the budget of the United States and for what we what we budget for, uh, what we appropriate. Uh, it's in charge of trade, uh, of of tariffs. Uh, it has a a, a a big say in terms of uh, Medicare uh, and Social Security. Um, those are the, those are the issues that uh, primarily come through the committee. And I'm obviously I'm also the chair of the Democratic Caucus. Now you're a New Yorker. Uh, were you born and raised in New York? Yeah, I was born and raised in Queens. Um, 
in uh, Elmhurst, how, uh, in Elmhurst, in St. John's Hospital on Queens Boulevard. It's no longer there, uh, but uh, I've been a lifelong resident of uh, of Queens County and uh, and of New York City. And why why Congress? Like, what was your pathway to being a congressman? You know, I, I don't know if I ever actually woke up one morning and said I'm going to be a congressman. It wasn't like that. Um, but I was always very politically aware. I came from a very politically active family. Uh, uh, my uncle Walter Crowley was a civic activist and was involved in local democratic politics and had ran for office a number of times, um, almost successfully in the 60s and didn't uh, quite uh, win, uh, but um, came close. And then uh, same thing in the 70s. And in 1984, he ran for uh, the congressional seat I, I, I hold today when Jerry Ferraro ran for vice president. And I was a young man at the time. I was 22 and I was even more engaged than ever at that point uh, I had been the president of my my high school class at Powell Memorial High School on the west side of Manhattan, uh, and uh, <laughs> I had been involved in, in politics at Queens College, my alma mater, in my college days. But um, and I'd ran for president then, and was that was my first loss in uh, in, in running for office. But uh, I learned a lot, and uh, but I was really intrigued when uh, Jerry Farrar ran for for vice president on, with Walter Mondale and. My uncle was in this race, and uh, we were all in. But I, I had been involved in politics prior to that. The real first campaign I was engaged in was in 1977 when Mario Cuomo was running for mayor of New York City, and uh, my uncle was behind him, and I was a hundred, I was square, hundred square behind him as well. Later interned for him, and then uh, uh, when I was in the state assembly, uh, he was governor. I was there, so it's uh, he's one of my heroes in life. I don't even know where to begin with, like what is happening in Congress. It's from an outsider. It seems like it is a nightmare. It's, it feels like a nightmare in the public. Mm. I'd love to know what is it like to be in Congress right now with so much happening, trying to push back against an agenda from the White House and from the congressional leadership that it just isn't in the best interest of the people you represent or so many people around the country. What's it like? You know, I, I've had some some. You know, a number of experiences in the House uh, throughout my years of service, and but it's never been quite like it is today. It's it's exhausting in many respects. You know, you wake up every morning and there's tweets you have to respond to, even just mentally respond to in your own your own brain. Um, but it has you know real life consequences. You know, when the president tweets out that he um, thinks that people should uh, have work requirements before they be eligible for Medicaid. You know, I, I question myself, does the president work enough to be eligible for the benefits that he receives at this point? You know, but um, it's just mind boggling in, in, in terms of what we're grappling with. Um, and, and at the same time, you know, I, I, I've, I've been inspired to be in government and to want to help advance uh, people and uh, help advance the country. And here I see just on a daily basis uh, something that's being taken away or their attempt to, to whether it's the the dreamers and deport them or it's, you know, the, the, this tax bill that is a big giveaway to the wealthiest corporations in the, in the history of the world and the wealthiest in this country, the greatest country on earth giving you know, so much to the to who least need it at the expense uh, of future generations. It's, 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 it's exhausting to say the least. You started talking about the Medicaid work requirement. How, can you just sum that up for people that don't know uh, what you were talking about, that don't know the issue deeply and, and sort of where it's at? Well, the president is, is, is saying that he's in favor of seeing additional work requirements uh, for people to be eligible for uh, Medicaid. Uh, and, you know, I think it's, it's quite ludicrous in the sense that the notion or idea behind Medicaid is to ensure that the, 
that the least amongst us, the, those who have the least, um, have a modicum of exposure to healthcare. Um, and that a healthier population is something that we all should be in favor of. A healthier workforce, quite frankly, uh, really relies upon uh, Medicaid. Uh, so it, it, again, I think it's just another attempt by this president to offer red meat uh, to his uh, to his base that thinks that there are too many people who are freeloading or or that uh, that somehow that people want to be on Medicaid that that's the you know a life dream of people and it's not I mean people do want a better way of life for themselves they want to have those opportunities but we're talking about children we're talking about poor children and poor uh, poor individuals in this country and those are the ones who will be hurt by this it, it uh, um, and I, I just think that this president fails to see this you know we both grew up in Queens New York. Um, but I grew up on the other side of the tracks, or in this case, as I like to say, the other side of the Long Island Expressway. And I just don't think he has a real sense of what life potentially really is for someone who lives in public housing or someone who's who's living on the margins. And it's easy for him to tweet these things out and not really fully understand the full consequences of what this means to an individual's life. Yeah, I know you've also been really vocal around immigrant rights. And, mm-hmm. and can you talk about what's going on with temporary protected status and, and like and what and what's at stake or what can Congress do? What can we do to press Congress or our local officials? Well, a lot of this is at the discretion of the executive and the president at this point. Um, temporary, protect, te- temporary protective status was issued to a number of, uh, of countries. Uh, Nepal, uh, probably most recently, and I think it was in 2015 after their earthquake. Um, but uh, we've had uh, Nicaragua. We've had El Salvador. We've had uh, uh, Haiti. Um, a number of, of, uh, of, of countries that have had natural disasters uh, where we give this temporary status uh, so that um, we, we give some relief to those countries uh, as well, let them get back on their feet. In the case of El Salvador, which was recently announced that the White House would, uh, would suspend uh, the, the, the TPS, uh, they're giving these individuals who have been living here for quite some time, so some for over 20 or 25 years, uh, 18 months to uh, to gather all their things and leave the country. And it's, it is it is for, for many of these individuals, their children are American citizens. They've been ensconced here for, as I said, almost a quarter of a century. They own homes. Uh, they are, they're, 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 you know, uh, own businesses. And um, I think it's really without regard as to what's going to happen to these individuals. So out of, a, out of almost a quarter of a million El Salvadorians here in the United States, that would be, uh, 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 because of this uh, this decision, uh, forced to leave the country in 18 months. Uh, what I hope can happen here is that you know, before that, we'll bring balance back to Washington, that we'll see a change in government here in the House of Representatives, that we'll, ha- we'll be in a position to, uh, to, 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 uh, uh, to, to leverage and to help keep these, uh, these folks here in the United States. Is there anything we can do about it, or do we just wait until maybe uh, we win back the House or the Senate, and and then and then maybe it can slow down, or well, I or think, are we just sort of screwed in this moment? I I do think that to some degree, uh, what we have here uh, is uh, a real crisis for these individuals because, and I think the more your listeners understand what they're facing, um, aside from the American citizen aspect of the children uh, of those who have protective status, uh, going back to El Salvador right now. Uh, well, we know there's a tremendous gang violence, and we have this. It's a very violent country in, in many respects. Um, that 
we're putting people who are in, in a stable environment and, and sending them back to a, a less than stable environment. So I think more people understand what's happening in these individual countries or understand why it's important for them not to be forcibly sent back to their country of origin at this point in time. And quite frankly, I think, uh, you know, when you're here for 20 or 25 years to just ask people to uplift and go back is not a very realistic thing to do. They're contributing to, to our society. They're contributing to our economy. They are not a security risk. They have been fully vetted and uh, gone through background checks. Um, they may not be eligible for citizenship, uh, but I do think that they, they ought to be able to, to stay here. But what your listeners need to know is that uh, they need to be informed and understand why it is important that they stay here. And that uh, I, I do believe that ultimately it's uh, we have 18 months, and that's, um, that's a, good, it's a good bit of time. Uh, that means we'll have an election between now and then. And my hope is that if we are able to restore some balance here in Washington, that we can address that issue. How does DACA play into this? Does, does DACA play into this at all, or is DACA covered yeah, under something else? DACA is a separate issue. Um, DACA uh, are, are, the, are the dreamers, are the, those individuals who were brought to the United States by their parents uh, undocumented and um, uh, when they were children. And um, the, under an executive order that was signed by, the, by then President Obama, they were given status uh, uh, to uh, register with the uh, federal government to uh, – uh, to be issued work papers, uh, be able to attend school, uh, and uh, be, contribute to uh, uh, to society. Uh, the President uh, Trump uh, suspended that uh, in September of last year, and it's set, set to expire in March of this year, unless Congress acts legislatively to uh, to turn that around. And uh, what's happening right now, there are negotiations um, in the House of Representatives, in the Senate, and between the House, uh, Senate, and the White House, on this issue right now. I think uh, it's been cluttered by uh, the inclusion by the White House and by my Republican colleagues, uh, more conservative colleagues, with issues uh, that really pertain to a broader uh, uh, comprehensive immigration reform bill uh, and uh, are not relevant, in my opinion, uh, to uh, the issue of the DREAMers or DACA recipients. And uh, that would include, I think, the president's wall. These individuals, uh, much like the TPS individuals, they are not a threat to the security of the United States. Um, they are Americans in every way but in paper. They love this country. They're contributing mightily towards it, and they want to be even more uh, contributory towards our country. And um, I think for uh, for that reason, uh, we should really pass a clean DREAM Act or a DACA bill. Is that likely? Or will, will, do you think that— uh, the Dems will have to give up something substantial to get DACA passed, or do you think it'll happen at the last minute? Well, I do think that, you know, that remains to be seen, just what, um, if any machinations behind the scene will be worked uh, to, to, to to forge some kind of a, of a, of a bill. But uh, I have serious concerns about uh, mingling with the issue of the DREAMers or DACA recipients, uh, the issue of diversity visas, or family reunification. And I think that's what the White House and um, my Republican colleagues, in particular Kevin McCarthy, have raised most recently. I don't think they're relevant to this issue at all of the DACA recipients, nor, quite frankly, do I think a wall is relevant to this. As I said, they are not a security threat. Uh, they are here. They're contributing to this country. And I think that the expense of a wall in of itself is one of the most biggest boondoggles that uh, we could hoist uh, uh, upon the American people. Uh, as I've said repeatedly, you cannot live in this wall. You cannot drive on this wall. It is a waste of infrastructure, uh, and it's it's a negative, negative message to our southern neighbors. Uh, it's environmentally uh, environmentally uh, unsound uh, and ought not to take place. 
Um, so I would not support a dream bill that would include a wall. And I have very strong reservations about including those other issues in negotiating on the issue of the dreamers. Now, what about the privatization of Social Security? I know that that's been an issue that's come up in the in the past year or so. Mm-hmm. Um, first, can you help people understand what the issue is? If because I would say a lot of people like hear the phrase but don't really know. Yeah. Uh, and like, what's your position on it? Well, I'm 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 vehemently opposed to the privatization of Social Security. The Republicans attempted to do that a number of years ago, and they were fought back by Democrats. And in fact, it was one of the reasons why they lost control of the House of Representatives back in 2010. Um, we vehemently opposed uh, the privatization. What that would do, it would uh, it would allow for uh, investment in the stock markets um, uh, for, uh, uh, for 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 portions of one Social Security check. And I just don't think. Look, the markets are performing well right now. They have been, quite frankly, not just this year, but have consistently uh, since the day that Barack Obama took office. They've improved um, uh, tremendously. Uh, and there is a role for the markets to play, and I'm not here to say that uh, people ought not to invest and have a diversified portfolio, but to take something that is supposed to be a given, uh, a sure thing, uh, that when everything else fails, that their Social Security will be there. Uh, I just don't think we should have our retirees uh, looking every day at the paper to see how their Social Security is doing uh, in relation to the stock market. So um, I, I do think what you have here, uh, DeRay, uh, in the passage of this uh, this uh, this tax bill, this tax scam, as we call it, is really have a draining of the resources of the United States. What what what, what the Republicans did with this bill is they refinanced the House of the United States, and they took almost two trillion dollars out of the House, and they instead of putting it into their kids' college funds or into the infrastructure of the House by putting a new roof on it. They gave that money to the wealthiest corporations in the history of the world and to the wealthiest in this country. That's what happened. And what they're doing is they're, they're borrowing against the future of America. And what I really believe, Dray, what they really want to do is to use this as the, 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 the predicate to now go after uh, the, the entitlements, as they, as they call them, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, and make drastic cuts to them in order to lower the deficit and to lower uh, the, the the debt of the nation. And I think it's it's just a really incredible bait and switch that's gone on here. You know, I was talking to somebody recently about food stamps, that food stamps might be under siege as mm-hmm. uh as they as they look to go after entitlements and other welfare programs. So we'll stay tuned to see what the farm bill um that's absolutely right. And that's why it's so critical that we have parity in terms of what we spend on defense and what we spend on on domestic spending as well, and and food stamps and other programs like that uh, are, are 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 at risk right now. Now, what about Chip? Is Chip going to get? Uh, is health insurance for kids going to get put back in in the next whatever? Or yes, is I, that actually going to go away? No, I think it actually is going. We're going to pass that. I think that I feel more confidently about that uh, than before. Uh, the reality is, it's 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 sad to say that when they. Uh, took away the mandate uh, for the Affordable Care Act in their tax bill. It had had a, 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 a an impact on the the cost of chip and actually uh, reduced it from eight billion dollars to eight hundred million dollars, and uh, therefore a much more manageable uh, piece uh, that uh, can be rectified uh, uh, fairly easily. Now, uh, I, I suspect that we will uh, pass uh, chip uh, in the very very near future. Is it too early to talk about 2020 
And who's going to run for president? No, I don't. Look, I think it's if I said it was too early, it still wouldn't be too early for the people who are interested in running. So it's uh, I do think we have 2018 <laughs> first that we have, we want to get behind and 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 ensure that, I, as I said before, bring balance back to Washington. I think that's what's sorely missing here. I think, um, you know, uh, look, uh, I may not like the fact that folks voted for uh, Donald Trump. I think that he sold them a pig in a poke. But, you know, I have to respect uh, their right to do that. And. And and not you know to some degree not not be as questioning of it at this point, but I do think uh, 2020 is not too far from 2018, and I think that's the setup. And uh, you know we hear of Joe Biden going around the country, we hear of Oprah Winfrey, and that's caused quite a stir. You know that she may be potentially uh, uh, interested in running. We we know that there, are, you know, which I think is uh, uh, Deray, which I think is very interesting, is that uh, a number of House members. You know, you have like. Uh, uh, Tim Ryan from Ohio, you know, someone who wouldn't necessarily get exposure is being talked about as a potential uh, presidential nominee. Uh, and certainly uh, Governor Cuomo and uh, there are quite a few New Yorkers, I think, Bill de Blasio and uh, Kirsten Gillibrand. And I've even heard Mike Bloomberg might be looking at this as a Democrat as well. Um, you know, I just think there's, there's, there's a wealth of Democrats out there that are are looking at this, both the uh, governors and the House and the Senate, but uh, even business people. Uh, we know uh, of uh, Mr. Iger of, of Disney, uh, uh, Mr. Schultz, and uh, as I mentioned before, uh, Oprah Really? Winfrey. The Disney guy? Yeah, I've heard his name banted about a bit, you know, so I think if they figure if Donald Trump can do it, why can't they? You know, maybe they're right. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Do you have anybody, do you have a short list of people that you think uh, we should be paying attention to? You know, not yet. My focus really is here on winning back the House and looking at the uh, I think our, our 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 leverage and our opportunities to win House seats uh, in New York, in California, especially in light of this uh, this tax bill and and the the attack on salt, uh, state and local tax deductibility. What's that doing to our local governments and to and to our our, our state like New York? Uh, and um, uh, so I think there are great opportunities in New York, in California, Pennsylvania, even Florida. Um, and we see the recent uh, announcement uh, of of the uh, uh, re- redistricting, uh, the, the courts throwing out the redistricting in um, in North Carolina, and that affect what's going to happen in Pennsylvania if they actually redistrict. Uh, uh, can that uh, give some advantage back to Democrats? And I feel you know we need 24 seats to win back the House of Representatives. Uh, we've identified 23 that Hillary Clinton won. Uh, of which 21, Barack Obama, also one that are held by Republicans today. Um, and that's fertile ground for us. We we have to expand that field, uh, I think, way beyond uh, 45 seats um, to be really competitive. But I, I feel as though uh, with the president's numbers so low, uh, with the, the general malaise I think the country feels in terms of the direction of the country, uh, that it's an opportunity for us. But we need to not only be against this president and what he stands for, which we are, uh, but we need to be for something as well. And I think that's what is going to help uh, really uh, uh, push uh, uh, the public towards the Democrats in this upcoming election. Do you think that the Mueller investigation is going to go anywhere or is this or, or we got to wait it out or like what's your, well, you I do, know, I consider you much more of an insider than us. I think the Mueller investigation has already gone somewhere. It has two convictions, uh, you know, and you have uh, the former national security advisor who's who's uh, who's who's likely going to jail and uh so um, I, I think that has already produced uh, some issues here. Um, what I've said uh, and repeatedly, you know, I know people talk about the need to impeach the president, all these things. I think we need to let the Mueller investigation continue. He's doing his job um, and it's, it's a solemn job. It's, it's not something just to, for politics. Or if, it's, it's about our country. It's about our nation. 
and it needs to be done properly. And let the facts lead where they may. And, 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 and that includes if the president is exonerated in terms of collusion or uh, if his administration or his campaign is, well, we have to accept that as well. Uh, I think what's most important is we need to, as Democrats, set out an agenda of positive growth for our nation, job growth for our constituencies. And that's how we're going to be successful. It's about the better deal. It's about uh, better jobs, better wages, and a better future for our nation. And as the chair of the caucus, that's one of my roles to help uh, ensure that we stay as unified as possible, working with Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer and Jim Clyburn uh, and my the vice chair of the Democratic caucus is Linda Sanchez from California, working together to uh, ensure that unity as best we can uh, to, uh, to, to, to provide the best leverage we can to promote the issues that we feel are reflective of the Democratic caucus and reflective of our country as well. Now, there are a lot of people in this moment who have lost hope, who feel like the world is sort of crumbling around them. They protested, they marched, they've been to they've been to every panel they can go to and they still feel like nothing's changing. What do you say to those people? I say to them, never bet against America. Um, I think uh, I think America and Americans, generally speaking, are inherently a good, decent, honorable people. Uh, We sometimes of we stray a little bit and I think we, that was represented in terms of this election. Um, but we'll come back. And I think the, the American people are about goodness. And where can people go to follow you to, to stay up on what you're doing? Well, they can, they can get me on Twitter at rep Joe Crowley. That's probably the easiest way at rep Joe Crowley. Rep Joe Crowley. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I can't wait to have you back again to keep us updated. We'll follow uh, what you're doing and, thanks, and what Terry. the, what the house is doing as we try and survive the next couple of years. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Great being with you. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Buy Save the People. Make sure that you uh, share it with a friend and also make sure that you buy tickets to the first live show of Buy Save the People ever. It's happening in D.C. February 18th. Do it now. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.